Good morning. I love that song. I've witnessed it. I just, um, I'm the one that put the songs together knowing what I was also talking about. And I should have let somebody else pick music. Maybe they wouldn't have picked that song because, man, that gets to me every time. We all find ourselves somewhere in that bridge where we've seen God heal us. We've seen God save us. We've seen, and it just, um, it gets me. Every time, and I also realized now I need a bigger table, and so uh, too many things uh, working through this. For those of you that um, might be visiting with us today, we're grateful you come to uh, visit with us. My name is Troy Freeman. I'm the worship pastor here, and I say that, and I said this two weeks ago when I spoke in San Francisco when we were on our mission trip, that's so that if you like what I say, you're like, hey, that wasn't bad for a worship pastor. If you, and if you don't like what I say, you're like, well, at least he's not... Not the pastor, he'll be singing next week. So I understand that. So um, I'm so excited and humbled and just moved by the passage this week. I'm going to tell you that right off the beginning, right off the start. This could easily be four different sermons, but I decided to make it one two-hour sermon right together. And so um, I'm glad Rob said that about the students because the students are ready to sit there for two hours. It's going to be awesome today. And you'll still make your lunch reservation. That's noon, all right? So it's going to be great. And some of you that have heard me speak before are saying, you're really not lying because I've been here before when you've talked. But um, I got to tell you, this, this is, the month of June is, is exciting for us. Um, just almost two weeks ago, Jen and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Yes. Um, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that how evil of your parents to get together and arrange a marriage for two 10 year olds. And I understand that. Um, but that's the way we do things in our family. So, um, when I celebrate my 35th birthday this week, it'll be, no, 25 years of marriage, and in those 25 years, we've had uh, opportunities just this, these last uh, couple weeks to talk about uh, where God has, has brought us and the things that he's brought us through. And in 25 years, uh, you go through a lot of, of ups and downs. And, but I can go all the way back, and besides just God's hand in our marriage and him being the core and the center of our marriage, there's one thing that I can point back to that has brought success See, Jen is from Oklahoma City. I'm from the Chicago suburbs, and we've met in school in Nashville. And so what that means is there was a lot of travel time. And so we, we dated for almost three years before we got married. And so long distance, two of those years. And so some of those long road trips, as part of Jen's packing regimen, she packed a box of cards that was called the Ungame. Has anybody ever seen the Ungame? Yeah, it's deceitful because the word game should not be in it because it's not fun. I didn't consider it fun. What it is is a whole box of cards of scenarios and questions and discussion things. And so she thought, you know, it'd be cool. We're going to be together in this car for 11 hours. We're going to play the ungame. I'm going to read you a couple questions. <clears throat> There's part of the ungame. What's your favorite month in the year and Why? How do you think your mother would describe you? What is something that you've always wanted to try but never did? Which of your senses do you value the most? How do you feel about your name? 
If you could have lived at a different time in history, when would it have been? What's something that scares you? What color would you use to describe yourself and why? Complete this sentence, I hope. 11 hours, that's 22 hours round trip. This is while we were dating, while we were engaged. We've not played the ungame in a long time, but um, I guess that's from living together. I guess you just, that's life. You just talk about these things. But every time she would ask one of these cards and it would come out, she would say, now be honest. Don't just tell me what you think I want to hear. This morning, I've got a scenario for us. I want to play the ungame, you know, just us. Imagine we're in the car, all of us in a very large car. Here's the scenario. I pull the card out, and this is what it says. Each and every one of you can have exactly what you want, but without God. Or nothing we want, but only God himself. We don't have 22 hours to discuss this. We have two hours. All right. So in this scenario, let me just reiterate this, maybe rephrase it, reframe it. God is offering us two options, everything but him or him alone. Which one would you take? Would you take everything from God or nothing but God? And he's asking you, be honest. Don't just tell me what you think I want to hear. Today we're going to be in the book of Exodus, all right? And so in Exodus, let me give you like a little, a little uh, bring you up to speed of where we are. Exodus is a rescue story. Exodus is all about God saving and rescuing his people so that he can know them and he can have a relationship with them. That's key. That's key, all right? A rescue story that God rescues them so that they can know him and have a relationship with him. So we start in, in Exodus and uh, Moses, uh, God introduces himself to Moses through the burning bush. He says, I am who I am. He introduces himself to the Israelites through, uh, we see plagues, we see the crossing of the Red Sea, we see God showing uh, who he is, what he's about, what he's capable of doing, just a, just a small amount of what he's capable of doing. God gives Moses, we're gonna fast forward, they go, they get to Mount Sinai, God, uh, Moses goes up, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the people down below, alright, think he's taking way too long. They build an altar or an idol, out of their belongings, their jewelry. They build this golden calf. Moses is given this covenant, says, if you obey, I will be with you. If you do not obey, I will not be with you. He brings it down to the people. He sees what they've done. He's disgusted. He smashes the tablets, all right, in anger and disgust of what's been going on down there. And then you have a series of conversations of Moses Moses and God, and they're talking about, basically, Moses is pleading, God, do not destroy your people And we find ourselves where we are today. God delivered the Israelites somewhere around the time of 1491 BC, BC. This exodus that is taking place or where we find ourselves today is about four months after they left Egypt. And there are two things that were sandwiched in between. This long multi-chapter narrative of how to build the tabernacle, 
the place where God will dwell among his people. And the fact and the reality of building that tabernacle. And we land right here in the chapter, in chapter number 33 of Exodus. Remember that timing. He's given them the plan, the specifics, the blueprints of how to build the tabernacle. And then in just the flip of a page or two, we're going to build the tabernacle. And we find ourselves right here. We're going to come back to that point. But right now we're going to pray. God, we thank you for your presence. I thank you for your word. I thank you that every time that we open up this book, that something else leaps off the page. There's knowledge in here. There's truth in here. There's the blueprint of how we're to live our lives, the example of Jesus, the faith of so many people for thousands of years things that have been recorded that we can follow and understand that you are a faithful God. And this morning, God, in all of this, I pray that these aren't just words, but God, that these things would leap off the page into our hearts, that we'd see something new today, that we'd respond to what you have for us, and that we leave this place knowing that we've been in your presence. May we decrease, may you increase, may you do your work among your people today, for it's in your son's name that we pray, amen. I do best to remember things by alliteration and words, and so I'm going to give you a few little things to, to try to remember where we're going and, and what God's saying in each of these, these instances. And so the first section we're going to look at in Exodus 33, we're not going to look at the whole thing all at once. We're going to look at four different sections, and the first section is what I've called God's promise to his people, all right? God's promise to his people. And we're going to pick up, if you've got your Bibles there, we're going to pick up in chapter 33, starting with verse 1. Or you can follow along on the screen. And it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses. Go up from here. You and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. To the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Saying I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you. And will drive out the Canaanites. The Amorites. The Hathites. The Perizzites. The Hivites. And the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up with you because you're a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry. I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. God's promise to his people. In a nutshell, God tells them to break camp, head toward Canaan. Then he tells Moses, he's going to send, I'm going to send an angel with you. But his presence wouldn't be going with him because of what he had just witnessed as they built this calf out of gold, this idol that was false. He says, You're a stiff necked people, stubborn, unyielding. God even says he's so angry with these people that he tells Moses he would consume them or they would be destroyed if he went with them. He's angry. He's angry. 
Well, when the people heard this, because God said, hey, Moses, not only am I saying all this, go tell it to the people. I want you to tell them this. So God, or Moses goes, tells the people, hey, God says you're stiff-necked. His presence is not going to be there. He wants you to do X, Y, Z. And, and in this moment, they follow what he says. Now, similar to times like today, people would dress for the occasion. People would do, would, their appearance would be altered based on what was going on in their lives. And so if you were struggling, you might see somebody in sackcloth and ashes. And then somebody was celebrating, you might see them dressed to the nines and they would be just, um, elegant in what they were, what they were wearing. But if there was a point of mourning or remorse or repentance, they would remove all the accessories. It's very interesting that what God calls them to do is to take off the very things that they created this idol with. And they followed his instructions in repentance. See, the interesting thing about this, though, is not about their reaction. The interesting thing is that God made a promise And God's intent, as always, is to keep the promise. He's promised this land. He's promised this deliverance. The only thing is, the exception is, he's not going to go with them. God's a God who keeps his promises. When he says that if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. That's a promise. If he says, um, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life and not perish, that's a promise. Anything that you read his word is a promise. He's going to keep that promise. But here's the problem. The problem is, in this situation, it's possible to see the blessing that follow through of the promise and have the appearance of a blessed life but live completely apart from the presence of God. And in this situation, God was keeping his promise, withdrawing his presence. And that's the drama of this scenario. God keeps his promises. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. If you obey I will draw near. If you disobey, I will not draw near. Let's keep going. All right? Everybody good? Okay, thank you. The rest are asleep. All right, so here it is. Verse 7. Verse 7. All right, in chapter 33. Now Moses took a tent, pitched it outside the camp at a distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would stand up, each one at the door of his tent, and they would watch Moses until he entered the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow in worship, each one at the door of his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. When Moses would return to the camp, then his assistant, the young man, Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the inside of the tent. All right, so we had God's promise to his people. He's going to keep his promise. 
in our first passage, or first section of the passage. The next section is a holy place of prayer. A holy place of prayer. The understanding that God's going to keep that promise, his presence is going to be pulled away. But then we see that this is a regular thing for Moses, that Moses understands that his time with God is important. So he's going to create this portable tabernacle, if you will, set apart, apart from all the people, apart from the commotion, the distractions, the sin, everything that's going on with the people. And he's put this out at a distance. I struggle with focus. And so I do best if I'm going to need to focus on something, whether it's this, whether it's, whether it's instructions, whether it's anything I, I can, I, I, I was in, uh, we served in Connecticut for a year, my, my office or two years. And we, um, my office looked out over these woods and I was working on worship service or something for that week. And I had this huge window and it was snow on the ground. It was beautiful and wildlife would come. And I see this squirrel just coming and walking and just, just leaving footprints. And it was paw prints, not feet prints. And he was, he was coming around through that snow and it was something like out of National Geographic. And it continued to be that when the hawk came swooping down. It was this huge, I say it was, it was more like a condor. And the, it came down and right there it swooped, it snatched that up and took off into the air. I had, I don't know what I did after that because that was so distracting and I couldn't, I could not function. I had to have blinds put in that office. I could not function. Anything, then I was just watching that every day. I'd come in and I'd be like, oh, I'd pull up my chair. I was like, what's going to happen on the big screen today? Like, what's going on? I can't do that. I can't, I got to focus. I got to focus. I need to be set apart away from everything. When we we're reconstructing since flood number 47 in my office back here at Christmas time, we're reconstructing and reconfiguring. And guess where my desk faces? There's no windows in there, but it doesn't even face the door. It faces the wall. I have to Focus. I have to be separated. And that's what's going on here. So whenever Moses would go out there, okay, it's set apart. If anybody wanted to meet God, they went out to this tent. And it took a little bit of time. It took a little bit of effort. And it required them to make whatever preparations were necessary to, to go out to that place. And that was the meeting place. That was the tent of meeting. Now, whenever Moses got out there... He would speak to God in that pillar of the cloud. Remember, the pillar of the cloud was, was during the day, fire by night. As Moses prayed to God, that pillar remained at the entrance. And as people witnessed what Moses was doing, he was worshiping, he was praying. And as, as they witnessed that, they began to come out of their tents. And they would stand at their tents in honor and reverence and worship. And they would bow down in honor Reverence and worship. One man, one man's worship, one man's personal prayer time, one man's personal time of worship with God drew others and impacted others. Goes beyond that in that one passage. See what I mean? There's a lot, there's a lot here. It says here that Moses and God would speak. As a man speaks to his friend, 
There's a unique relationship. You have unique relationships. I have unique relationships. I have looks that I can give certain people. There's looks we have up here on the stage that when I give that look, it's like, hmm, we are, we're off. Something's not right. There's looks, the choir tells me I do this, that, that I will smile or not smile. And then they constantly wonder, is he happy with us? Uh, is he not happy with us? There are moments they don't have to guess. Because sometimes I'm like, what? What is, where, what's going on? And the other times I'm like, we get to a part we have never gotten right and we get it right. And I'm like, yes, it's awesome. Okay, there's, we have this unique relationship. Or sometimes I'm like, I don't even know what my face is saying. They tell me that. But, but, um, my kids have that. We've got, my wife and I, we could say things. I mean, we even saw it in Frozen. We finish each other's sandwiches. That's right. See? And so there was that, there's that unique communication, these relationships. It says here, it actually, it says back in Numbers chapter 12, verse eight, it says that that relationship with Moses and God was a unique one. It says that God says, I speak with him directly, plainly, and not in riddles. There was what I call this incredible intimacy between these two in the midst of respectful reverence. Moses knew God nearly 1,500 years before Jesus. His faith is unbelievable. His communication skills with God unmatched. And his personal worship impacted other people and drew them into that same relationship and reverence. God had a promise. He kept his promise for his people. He was going to take his presence away. And in that sense, and in that situation, Moses takes off over to his portable tabernacle. He begins to meet with God. Others begin to stand or bow in reverence. And he has this conversation as a person does with their friend. And he feels the openness and the ability and the freedom to to, to beg and to plead and to ask God for certain things. But that personal worship draws other people in. Let's keep going. Chapter 33. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, look, you've told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name. You've also found favor with me. Now I have indeed found favor with you. Please teach me your ways and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses responded, if your presence does not go, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you've asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. Secret ingredient right here. This is the section I call Moses' personal plea. Moses understood that the promised land and the trip and the journey was nothing if God wasn't there. 
So because of this relationship with God and this ongoing communication and this freedom that he has with God to, out of reverence, respectfully request, he says, you've got to go with us. We've made you upset. As a people, we have failed you time and time again. And I know we just had this instance. I was so mad. I chucked these stones on the ground. I I know I know, but we have to have you here. We'll go on, we'll build this tabernacle from these chapters and chapters of, 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 of things, but you, if you're not there, what are we doing? See, but I, I believe that we kind of fall into this category ourselves, and we, you know, we can, as a church... We can focus on education and learning God's word. And we, and we do that. We do that very well. I grew up with a severe drug problem. Every time, and my parents are here. This is the testimony. They're right here. All right. Every time the doors of the church were open, I was drugged to church. And I was, I'm telling you. I was there. I was there and I absorbed every ounce of opportunity to know more about who Jesus was and who God was and and the relationship I'm supposed to have. And I can fill my mind with knowledge, but if the spirit's not moving and I don't invite him in and his presence is not here, it's meaningless. And we can get so caught up in learning about God and knowing about God and understanding what we're supposed to do. But if his presence isn't there... It's religion. We all need that recalibration. We all need to come back and to reevaluate and say, wait, when did we leave God? How far back was that? I love the Bible. I love reading it. I love teaching it. I love knowing it. But I don't want to replace the knowledge of God or replace that and put that in a place where I just need to be in the presence of him. You know, to be at a place of presence, we have to have our minds full of the word. We need to know what he says. But our hearts need to be full of the Spirit of God, too. I read this this week. Somebody said, if you have the Spirit without the Word, you blow up. If you have the Word without the Spirit, you dry up. But if you have both the Word and the Spirit, you grow up. God's presence is the secret ingredient. And that was Moses' personal plea. Last passage, the home stretch. I don't know how I'm going to fill the next hour and a half, but we're we're going to do that. Then Moses said, please, let me see your glory. God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, 
And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. God made a promise. He's going to keep that promise, but his presence is not going to be there. Moses has a special place and a special relationship with God. He goes out to this place, and because of that special uh, place and that set-apart location, he goes to meet with God. And because of that special relationship and the freedom that he has, he asks God, please, 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 please give us your presence. And then at this moment, he asks for another sign. He says, God, just show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me what it is that makes you God. It's not enough. Keep in mind, we didn't go through all of Exodus. We've already had a burning bush, a staff that becomes a snake, pillars of fire leading the crowd by night, clouds leading, or, uh, uh, fire leading them by night, the clouds leading them by day, and then manna. We haven't talked about the manna, the food that dropped to the ground from the sky. And oh, can you give me one more sign that I have found favor But that's the relationship that he has. And he's asking him just one more time. This is what I, can you just show me your glory? He wants to see God more clearly. He wants to have this, this relationship is paramount to him. Leave all the other stuff you've promised us. I don't, that's, that's fine. I I mean, no, you have to keep your promises, but I want you and I want to know you more. And I want to know where that power and what that presence means. And that's what he gets right here. All right. God agrees to it. Skip ahead. This is not on the screens, but in chapter 34, it's the actual occurrence. Okay. And in verse five, it says the Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, proclaimed his name, the Lord. And the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. The presence of God is the point. And when the presence of God is there, there's a firsthand knowledge of what makes God, God. God comes right there. He passes by. He protects Moses. But he passes by and in that moment, he declares what his nature is. In fact, way up when he was talking about what he was going to do, talked about how he was going to let his goodness pass in front of him. Understand that God is a God of promises that he will keep. He desires a relationship with us. We already talked about that. That's the rescue story, to know us, to have a relationship with us. When we have that relationship, there's freedom, there's reverence, there's love. But I call this section the power of God's presence. Because when he comes near, we see God for who he is and what makes God, God.
And when God himself declares what his glory is, what makes him God, this is what he says. Right there what we just read. I am compassionate and gracious. First words God uses to describe himself. Compassionate, merciful, gracious. He's slow to anger. Hebrew phrase actually can be translated there, long of nostrils. How's that for a, for a, a painted picture? But if you think of a bull, he's got a short snout. Rage doesn't take much to, to provoke him to anger. God is slow to anger. You read through this and it says the Old Testament talks about the things that people would do that provoked God to anger. That wasn't like a natural thing, all right? That wasn't a natural thing for him. You go over into the New Testament and what is God asking us to do to one another? Provoke one another to love. We, we don't need to be provoked to anger. That's my spiritual gift. All right. I can, I can do that on the, in a, in a snap of a finger. Ask my family. For being honest, we don't need to be provoked to anger. We need to be provoked to love. God, that's not even part of his DNA. He doesn't need to be provoked to love. He doesn't need, he, that's who he is. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. Anger is our nature. Mercy is God's nature. He says he's abounding in faithful love and truth. His determined commitment to us never runs dry. He never throws up his hands despite all the reasons that I give him to do so. He's maintaining faithful love for a thousand generations. God says there's no termination date on my commitment level to you. You can't get rid of my grace. You can't outrun my mercy. My heart is set on you. But don't confuse all this before you know that God's not lenient because he finishes by saying he's bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. His promise of goodness passes down, but he's not a softy. He won't be mocked and we reap what we sow. Sorry. Moses says, show me your glory. Tell me what makes you, you. What makes God, God? And in those moments, he passes by him. His goodness is there and he proclaims his name and then tells you the nature of his heart. We're being told of God's deepest heart right here. We all know what happens. We're shown that heart as Jesus comes. And then on that cross, he demonstrates that love. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in that moment, he says to his father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The greatest mediator we could ever have. 1,500 years earlier, Moses is mediating and he is trying to get this, this relationship restored between his people and God. And he's, he's one person worshiping in a tent set apart. He's building this relationship with God. And in that moment, he has the ability and the freedom and the, the um, reverence to say, God, please don't leave us. 
please come with us. We are nothing without your presence. We are marked by your presence. Back in 33, way back in verse 16, he said, how will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? And I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. God's presence distinguishes us. It makes us different. People that know you and watch you worship, does that form of worship draw other people into wanting that? Or does it just look plain and dull? I don't mean corporate worship. I mean our worship, the way we live our lives, the way that we speak, the way that we pray. Is it infectious? Is it contagious? Do people see it and they go, I want that. What? How are they marked? How are they different? It's God's presence. I said I'd come back to this. Right here in this passage, okay, just before chapter 33, lots of chapters about the definition and what's going to happen with building the tabernacle and how to build it. No surprise and no coincidence that that's what we're talking about right here before they build the tabernacle because God's saying, and if you follow my example, and if you, I, and I will fulfill my promise, and you get to where you're going, guess what? It's nothing. It's religion without me. Plain and simple. You know, later in the word, it talks about the temple of God being our bodies. God dwells in the temple. And these living temples of God and where he dwells are nothing if he's not dwelling there. We leave this room today and we go to a Bible study class or we've already been to a Bible study class or from here on out, we go to a Bible study class and learn more, but we don't spend the time in his worship center and in his presence being with him and enjoying and taking the benefits and reaping the benefits of that presence of God. It's nothing. If I stand here and I talk for two hours to you and I read scripture and I regurgitate knowledge about who God is and he's not inside me and he's not dwelling in this temple, it's nothing. I'm nothing. Let's come back to the on game. Which one would you take? Would you take everything from God? Or nothing but God? We're an hour down the road. I'm going to pull that card back out. I'm going to ask it a different way. Which is more important to us? Working for God? Or God himself? An hour later, let's pull out this card. Are we more excited about the wedding and the celebration or the marriage and the relationship? 
First Baptist Louisville. Do we desire successful ministry marked with the best programs, the best music, the best preaching, the best teaching, the largest small groups? Or do we want Jesus? Personally, do you want all the blessings of God and what looks like a blessed life on the outside without his presence? Or do you just want to see Jesus? He's asking that. He says, be honest. Don't just tell me what you think I want to hear. Let's pray. God, once again, we, we open up your word. It does not disappoint. We thank you for the lives and the stories that have been handed down for generations upon generations and thousands of years for us to read these today in 2023 and find ourselves right in the middle of it. We're in a transition time in our church. We've been in this transition time. Some of us like the Israelites, we're, we're tired. It's been a long road. Maybe we've built something of our own. We've discovered things that maybe we've put in your place. But God, right now, today, we want to recognize that you are a God who keeps his promises. And you promised us that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. God, I pray that in this room, if there's somebody that doesn't know you first and foremost, that today they will respond and make that decision that God, without you in my life, I'm empty. I need you. God, I thank you for the reminder today that we need to set apart a place for prayer, a holy place of prayer set aside out of the chaos so that we might cultivate that relationship with you. We desire to have that relationship where you spoke with Moses face to face as a friend talks to another. Only built through time. God, I pray that if somebody in this room needs to just say, hey, this, I've, I know Jesus. I have accepted Jesus, but I haven't made that next step of discipleship and spending the time with him and in his word. I pray that this is a turning point today. God, I I pray that when we get to that point and we have this relationship with you, that we plead and we ask for the things that break our heart, for the things that break yours. God, don't remove your presence from this place. God, don't substitute meetings and rooms and fellowships and camps. Instead of just your presence here. 
And God, in those moments when we see you for who you are and we see the heart of God and what makes you God, may we just fall on our faces and worship for who you are, what you're doing, that you keep your promises. And God, if your presence is here, we're marked. We're different. And others will see that and they will want it too. Will you stand with us? This morning, God, we worship you in these next moments. We ask you to show us your glory. God, may you be magnified and made great in how we live, not just our words, but our actions, our deeds, our heart, the very core of what you see today. And may people respond today, wherever we are, to follow you.